stop turning that damn dial. We found him. This show is dedicated to the 750,000 fans and listeners spanning from the islands of Hawaii to the trailer parks of North Carolina and over to the whorehouses scattered throughout Europe. <laughs> Zip it. I wasn't finished. Of other shows and podcasts. Not my problem, people. You wanted an intellectual show that worked the brain like mental Viagra, getting old gracefully, and having a sex life like a rock star? Well, then keep your fingers crossed, because you're now listening to Alan Wooford on Diary of a Bald Man. This follically challenged air thief and borderline coffeeholic will educate and inform you about non-penetrating UFO abductions, developing the perfect chicken and dumplings, and how to live life at the speed of dark. Makes you wish you were hard of hearing, doesn't it? And here he is, with a voice that has you yearning to hear nails being dragged across a chalkboard, Alan Wooford. Hey everybody, this is Alan Wolford and you're listening to Diary of a Bald Man. Today I have a special guest, Mr. Daniel Hughes. Uh, just to give you an idea about this exceptional gentleman, he was once in the military serving in Vietnam, spent time in Antarctica, worked as an operator on cat crackers and in the oil industry, and we are pleased and honored to have him on the show today. Daniel, how are you, sir? Hey, I got to stop you right there. I am not a Vietnam veteran. I'm a Vietnam era veteran, Alan. Okay. I, I, I did not serve in Vietnam. Okay. Well, uh, did you go to Canada? <laughs> hey, no. Clint, Clinton went no. to Canada. I'm not going to say <laughs> no. anything, man. No, I did not go to Canada. <laughs> Excuse me. No, no. As a Vietnam veteran or Vietnam era veteran, and who didn't go to Canada, you know, so yeah, he's still completely <laughs> legal. So, Daniel, thank you for correcting me on that. But if you would, since we now know that you're a Vietnam-era veteran, if you would introduce yourself, uh, where you're currently located, and what you do now uh, that you're no longer in that era. Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be on the show with you, and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. So, uh, I I enlisted in 1972 out of high school, Uh, so it was a little bit too late to go over to Vietnam, but I did volunteer, and I don't mind telling you, I was in a, a, you know, basic training company with a lot of the last of the draftees. Oh, well. And and when they found out none of them were probably going to Vietnam like the rest of us that volunteered, uh, they were just not happy at all. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but um, uh, I'm currently a safety consultant. Um, I have spent nearly 40 years in the, in the safety and health field and are doing emergency response as well as uh, general industry and construction and mining. And um, I retired last year from uh, major corporations. I was with the Car- Parsons Corporation as a safety director. Oh, and big outfit, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I retired from them uh, in February after 21 years and uh, decided to do a little bit on my own. And I'm living in 
uh, central Indiana, about an hour west of Indianapolis with my wife. And um, we've got our little hobby farm, if you will. And nice. We love it out here in the Midwest, and that's what I'm doing now. Now, Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong. Now, I do consulting with an organization. You have your own company, isn't that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Peak Safety Solutions Incorporated, and I am the president. I am the CEO. I am the, well, gee, I'm just everything because I'm the only guy that works here. Okay, so you don't have to worry about any HR violations, right? Okay, (laughs) I'm just curious about that. So the left hand knows what the right hand does, yeah. Okay, brother, so for all the vets that listen in, uh, where'd you do your basic and your AIT at? Well, I did Fort Ord. Oh, California. Uh, it, oh, yeah, Fort Ord. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Fort Ord. And uh, when I when I was at Fort Ord, I got to tell you, it was, uh, you know, it reminds me of Mark Twain. It was one of the coldest winters I ever spent anywhere in the world was at Fort Ord uh, in October. Um and the wind blew off the uh, Monterey Bay there, and man, they kept the windows open because over the years they had discovered that uh, they had a lot of respiratory infections, and so they kept the windows nailed open. There was no way to shut them, and it was cold. So I did uh, did basic training there. Then I went to Fort Sam Houston, where I learned to be a, um, a 91 Bravo. Back then it was a, a medic, and then I transferred up to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, where I spent time with the 9th Infantry Division. Okay, yeah, good old Fort Sam. Yeah, so it's strange how they went from 91 Bravo and 91 Alpha. Now they're 90 or 68 whiskeys. I think it's the 68 whiskeys. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what they go by yeah. now. But yeah, back in the day, we were 91 series. So yep. yeah, that's pretty good. Yep. Well, yep. Brett, yep. let me ask you this, Daniel. You know, after you got out of the military, what? What was the reason for going into the oil industry? Was that something that you had historically in the family? Was that just of great interest to you instead of, you know, maintaining a career as a medic or going in as a civilian medic? Well, you know, I did spend a little time as a civilian medic. I actually got out of the Army about three months early because of uh, my second tour. Uh, so uh, okay. I did six years, but I, but I got out three months early because I had a job at uh, St. Luke's. Texas Children's Hospital in the emergency room in Houston, Texas. And I had never worked pediatrics or with children before. And after about three months of that, four months of that maybe, I realized that, man, I don't like this at all. It was very emotionally traumatizing for me. And uh, I found out that I just didn't have the capacity for that. And there were moments when, you know, you want to strangle a parent for, you know, why would you let your child stand or stand up in the front seat of a moving car? Yeah. And now they've gone through the windshield and, and you're concerned about glass in your eyes? I don't think so. And I just didn't have the capacity for it. So I got out. I kicked around in the construction industry for a period of time, uh, pretending to be a carpenter. <laughs> um, and then I, uh, I, I moved back to California. Uh, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, well, actually not a friend, his father, a kid I had gone to high school with. I had gone to high school with all the Kaufman brothers, and Mr. Kaufman was the veterans representative at the unemployment office, and when I walked in, he recognized me from high school and and, uh, sat down, and, of course, he interviewed all the veterans, and he said, hey, I have a great opportunity if you're interested, and these jobs pay well. If you can get in the refinery, these pay... I was just looking for a job, and... uh, um, and the refinery hired me. Uh, matter of fact, I was interviewed by a by an old World War II 82nd Airborne vet, 
Oh. And he looked he looked at my resume and he said, "You've kicked around quite a bit, and you're just looking for a home. Sign on with us, and you'll have one, and you'll never have to look for another job again." Well, that wasn't accurate, but uh, it did get me get my foot <laughs> in the door to the refinery, and I was happy for that. Uh, you know, it introduced me a whole new world that I hadn't looked at before. Well, let me ask: Was he previously a recruiter in the military? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he was the HR guy for that for the refinery. So, okay, uh, he okay. may have been a recruiter of sorts, but uh, not in that, not like you think. Yeah. So yeah. you know, when you think about your time back in the oil industry and working in refineries, um, and now as a safety guy, when you look back historically at you know what you worked in, what you faced on a daily basis. Was it pretty safe back then, or was there a lot of things that you were concerned with now uh, that you've done safety and you've been involved in the safety profession for that period of time? Well, you know, you open up a, you open up a good topic for conversation. It was actually horrible. The safety at that facility was horrible. Uh, we were there were five industry or five uh, major refineries in the Bay Area of California at the time, and we were the laughing stock of the other four. Uh, the other four were major players, Chevron, um, Exxon, Shell, DuPont. Uh, um, DuPont Chemical was on the, on the other side, on the uh, east side of us. Um, and then there was, um, uh, oh, there was another refinery. It was a small independent. We were at a small independent also, but we were the largest independent on the west coast. But our safety record was horrendous. And what brought me into safety was, um, I, I, you had mentioned I was a operator on a fluid catalytic cracking unit, and that's accurate, I was. And I had, uh, I had trained all the way up and qualified for all of the jobs except for the senior lead operator, which is a position I didn't want. Um, I got out of that because I went back to the maintenance gang, and the reason I did is because I didn't like the way the process unit was being run. I was, uh, uh, quite honestly, I was scared. Um, I knew something was going to happen. You know how you just have that sixth sense that says this isn't right and something's right. going to happen here. Yes, sir. And so I had been out uh, out of the uh, cracking unit as an operator and back in the maintenance department for about six months when um, a very good friend of mine was burned to death on that unit. Um, and Ed Provost was a you know professional rodeo cowboy. He was a great human being. He had a wife and a young son and another baby on the way. And uh, we all gathered when we found out what had happened uh, up at the burn center in Oakland. And it's unfortunately, but Ed lived for about six weeks and then finally succumbed to his injuries. But that set me on a terror and uh, a path that uh, almost destroyed me uh, because I took it very personal and I became very vocal. And had I not had backing of the union, I probably would have been terminated. But I became very vocal about what operators didn't know, what maintenance people didn't know, hazardous materials, and what's going through the pipelines. And, you know, there were things that we just, we understood temperatures and pressures, but nobody really told us about the chemical hazards. And, and even though uh, this was after uh, the, OSH, the Occupational Safety and Health Act had already been passed and was law, uh, there was no hazard communications going on. There was, uh, there were no material safety data sheets for us to refer to. There was really very little information about the chemicals unless you probed somebody that had been there for a very long time. And it was kind of a um, fiefdom on each unit 
and each number one lead operator had their own little kingdom and fiefdom and they kept information to themselves because it was a way to lord it over you and I remember even when I interviewed for the job that uh, as an operator there were uh, four lead operators and three of them said to me I want you to remember something you'll never know as much as I do about this unit and then the guy I went to work for my number one operator was the first one who said let's go for a walk and we went outside and he said by the time I'm done training you I want you to know not only what I know but I want you to know more than what I know and I want you to come into the control room and say hey Jim do you know this and take me outside and show me what you've learned and that's the reason I chose to go on to his shift uh, but even at that the senior leadership of that uh, operation was not they were pushing the limits all the time they were always pushing the limits for more production and it created uh, it created an atmosphere that was not only toxic but it created an atmosphere where it was just not safe if you had your eyes open it was just not safe um, not to drag this out too much Alan but to, to make no, a longer yeah. story short yeah well keep going keep going bro um, we had some other incidents that took place and so they uh, brought in uh, the fire and safety department was was what what ran safety in that department and it was a safety run safety program and as you know you've been in the business long enough to know safety run safety programs don't work uh, safety run safety programs mean that the safety people are the people in control of safety everybody else just goes I don't know ask the safety guy and uh, that that's uh, um, that's an opportunity for failure at every at every at every corner absolutely that, that is the absolute truth I, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more so to give you an idea we had um, on site we had 450 or 500 full-time employees of the corporation and about a thousand contractors on a daily basis uh, and then in a turnaround of course that that number would double but just normal day-to-day -day operations you didn't just say 1200 1300 people in the refinery 165 acres of refinery and chemical plant two docks on the Sacramento Bay uh, for loading and unloading plus tank farms and all of the other things that go along with it and we had 33 people in the safety department and because safety was safety run it was a safety run safety program and that's just a recipe for failure um, brought in a new safety manager who was a certified safety professional first time I'd ever heard the term had no idea what that meant but he knew about me because of my um, uh, to put it bluntly my self-destructive behaviors and oh, also no my, no my, there's no way my vocal I was just very vocal I never passed up an opportunity to say that's wrong that's gonna get somebody else killed that's what I you know blah 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 and I was because I was that guy um, so I put together, uh, he, 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 he brought me into his office and he said, you know, I'm going to make some changes around here and I want you to consider coming to work in the safety department. And I said, well, those are all union jobs. I don't have seniority for that. And he said, not going to stay that way. It's not going to stay that way. I'm going to make those management jobs. They're going to be outside the union. And if you're interested, I'll come back and talk to you. So in the meantime, he started a volunteer fire brigade, which I joined. Um, and got a little bit of a background in emergency response and they liked the fact that I'd been a medic and that helped out because you know I had some idea what was going on anyway not with fire but certainly with the medical part oh absolutely um, they go hand so in I hand. became a CPR first aid instructor 
um, and dedicated myself to that and then a volunteer firefighter so I was always there for the uh, for the drills and whenever there was a fire and we had fires frequently and uh, after about a year he called me in and he said I'd like to interview for the job and I thought well I, I, don't, I don't know how you're gonna interview me because I really don't know how to answer any of your questions and he said you don't have to I already know your character and what I want you to do is I just want you to tell me whether you want the position or not and I said I'll take it I'll take it so that introduced me to safety and then I began the learning process because I came in not knowing anything except this doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense and I have my eyes wide open and I don't understand why we do things that way and I had a questioning attitude and that was what he really wanted from me so I joined the team uh, became part of the uh, revised safety department I went on to be a uh, full-time uh, or certified California State firefighter uh, which none of the other folks in the previous department had ever done and I tagged up or was put with someone who had been in the department for over 20 years. Nice guy, uh, loved Gino to death, but um, he was a safety cop. And I rode around with him and I went through some of my most embarrassing moments with him because I was embarrassed for him. I was embarrassed for the way he approached things. I was embarrassed for him uh, in the way that he spoke to employees whether they were subcontractors, uh, whether they were our own folks, it didn't matter. It was the way he approached the job. And I, I remember one episode where uh, two young kids had just been hired just for a day job, just in the refinery to dump catalyst out of these big bins. And they hauled it up on, a, on an overhead hoist. They opened up the bag. They dropped it into a metal hopper, and then the metal hopper was carried away off to the unit. But uh, when we pulled up to where they were working, Gino said, watch this. And he got out of the truck and he walked over to them and he just railed on them for 15 minutes. So he just chewed them up one side and down the other because they were wearing tennis shoes and they were wearing uh, no gloves, no eye protection, no hard hats, t-shirts. They were college kids. They were just there probably making minimum wage and had no training. Nobody had told them what to expect. So he said, what'd you think of that? And I just told him in the cab of the truck, I said, I think that's the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. Those kids are gonna walk away from here knowing one thing, you're a jerk. That's all they got out of that. And that is not the way we should approach this. So we get back to the fire station and of course, all, by, you know, in a refinery, it's kind of like uh, Peyton Place, boy. If something happens like that or to that uh, uh, degree, it's, it just spreads like wildfire through the whole refinery. The guys in the office knew about this incident before we drove back there. And they asked me right away, they said, what'd you think of that? And I said, I thought it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. We have to be better than that. There's no way that we can think that we're going to represent safety or improve the safety of this facility if we keep talking to people like that. It was embarrassing. I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed for him. And of course he was still standing there and he was mad at me at the time. Later on, 10 years from then, he became one of my best friends and I hired him when I started my first company. Well, that's the way it had, works out. You start out, you know, disagreeing, yeah. disliking, you work out all your negative aspects, it turns into something positive. Sometimes, sometimes. Uh, yeah, exactly. But for him, it was an eye-opening event for him and he was mad at the time, but he recognized I was right, that that doesn't work. And so uh, we changed, you know, 
little by little over the course of time. I'd like to tell you that we had no more fatalities, but that's not accurate. We had nine more uh, before I left that facility. And, uh, you know, five of them in one incident where there were four fatalities and one serious injury. Um, but, and it was just stuff that was avoidable, things that should have been, should have never happened. But that was my introduction to safety. So when you asked me, I, I and honestly, I did work refineries after that as a contractor. Mm-hmm. I worked at some of the other Shell, Exxon, uh, Chevron. I worked at some of those facilities during turnarounds. Okay. They weren't they weren't that much better, by the way. They weren't that much better. They may have had a better record, but the way they ran things, it wasn't that much better. Yeah, I can tell you from some of the experiences I had down in Deer Park in Texas and some other ones in uh, Pennsylvania, um, it, it still surprised me that some of these facilities are still operating and their TRIRs and their EMRs and everything are <laughs> dramatically higher. But, you know, brother, when we look back at this, um, you know, I saw that you had that introduction in the field of safety. It, was that something you would ever thought you would have transitioned to in the manner no. that you did? No, okay. Never, never. I never, I never even gave a safety a thought. Never even considered it. Okay. That. No. So, yeah. as of today, now that you've had all mm-hmm. that, what does a usual day consist of for you? I mean, you're not consistently working around refineries or walking in the plants. I know that you, on occasion, go, um, you know, skydiving and that you do unlicensed marital memes. But other than <laughs> educating men and coexisting with the other half successfully, what does your day consist of now that? You know, you're you're a contractor and possibly, you know, educating others like you are doing through the podcast right now. <laughs> well, one of the things I do, and, and I don't want to get off on too much and I don't want to spoil your podcast for you. but Oh, I no, I do that on my own. You're good. But, but, yeah. <laughs> but I determined early on uh, after, and I should have been doing this all along, is uh, the first hour of my morning every day. I get up before the wife does. And first hour of my day every morning I spend in my Bible and I spend in prayer. And I do that just to set the tone for my day. Absolutely. And, uh, then my wife gets up and then we, we make breakfast together, which is kind of cool when you're semi-retired and around the house a lot more. So I'm able to cook, you know, cook breakfast with my wife now. Uh, she does all the cooking. I do the coffee and maybe cut fruit. But, okay. Um, and in the meantime, we'll listen to a podcast, um, um, the Bible through a year, Bible in a year. So we put that on while we're cooking breakfast and then talk about it a little bit. Uh, then we'll have breakfast together. Then I'll then typically on my, my typical day now is um, I've got some work uh, that I do remotely. I'm doing it here from the house, and um, I've been contracted by a company to to have some input on a major project they're doing out in California from a distance. So um, I'm going through files right now, and I'm looking at things where we can make improvements and where we can make some uh, changes and where some of it will need to be done by the construction contractor and other parts of it will be need to be done by the local fire department. They've asked me for some emergency response consultation, which, which is a field that I've always appreciated and enjoyed a lot. Um, and then I've got some audits coming up, so I'll be uh, talking to the guys who are heading that up tomorrow. And uh, I've, I've told them I'd take the lead on some of these audits for them for a major corporation. Um, and then uh, I'm preparing for May, and the reason I'm preparing for May, I'm, I'm working out uh, several days uh, a week. Today was my light day, so I just spent an hour on my bicycle after doing 15 minutes of yoga. 
uh, a heavy day for me is an hour on the bicycle, 15 minutes of yoga prior to that. Then I go out to my uh, garage and I, I lift weights, do some elliptical, and then spend 30 minutes on the rowing machine just to prepare for skydiving season that starts in May. You know, that, that's interesting you say that. I used to have a, a rowing machine that I constantly drug around with me. I used to love, you know, getting on that and just focusing. Yeah, I didn't really focus on anything. I'd have, like, white noise, brown noise, just some kind of noise. Um, and, and I would just row and row. The other stuff I really didn't do, but I like the fact that you're talking about yoga uh, because one of the things I'm trying to deal with, you know, it's old injuries, um, but yeah. I was looking at like yoga, Pilates, um, revive and these other things. Cause as I'm getting older, you know, I'd, I want to maintain some range of motion and, uh, some sensible type of uh, workout since I can't do the PT like we used to do back in the day. And, and so I, I would say that what you're doing is probably one of the best things I've seen or heard people doing, you know, not only to set their mental status first thing in the morning into something positive, but that, that physical balance as well. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, like okay. you, I mean, I'm, I'm the old guy, so a lot of injuries yeah. uh, from previous, uh, you know, my military service and, and uh, motocross racing and, uh, you know, softball till I was 40, that kind of thing. So, I mean, uh, if you just want to say you don't do anything with your life, that's fine. I understand, brother. You don't, you don't, <laughs> you, you don't have to sit there and do like I do. It's like, man, where'd I get this scar from? Or, you know, how many times have I popped that knee doing a PLF or, you know, right. something like that? How did you get into skydiving? Was that through the military or something you picked up? Oh, no, no. Actually, I I got injured. So I I enlisted in 72, but I was badly injured in 73 when a drunk driver ran a red light and T-boned my car. So my my chest was crushed, and I had uh, numerous internal injuries, and it took me a long time to recover. So... My, uh, my dream or my plans for ever going to airborne school were kind of crushed along with my chest. I just never, never got it. Um, it just didn't have the confidence after that. Anyway, uh, oh, long good. story short, long story short, um, w- the way I got into skydiving was my son spent 10 years in the 82nd Airborne, and now my grandson's in the 82nd Airborne, by the way. Oh. Um, but my, my son, last year, I went out to visit them. And uh, I knew my, I'd already been skydiving once in the past uh, on a mining operation in Arizona. Took myself skydiving on my birthday. Everybody else was going to golf. Well, I'm terrible at golf. Golf, so they said, well, we're going to go golf on our day off. What are you going to do? And on a lark, I said, I'm going skydiving. Uh, It sounds like you were in the Tucson area. I was. was Okay, because I know a lot of people out there skydive, friends of mine. Yep, I was in the Tucson area, and I went up to Marana, and... uh, and uh, an old special forces guy used to run it up there then. And I told the guys, I said, I'm not going golf. And I suck at golf. I said, but I'm going to go skydiving. And they said, nah, I'll bet you don't. So I thought, okay, Monday's coming. So I'm going to have it videoed too. So I went ahead and I did a tandem jump. Had it videoed. And I brought the video in on Monday. And I said, you put your money where your mouth is, fellas. So, <laughs> so I showed them that. And uh, that, was my, that was my introduction to skydiving. But last year nice. I got with my... My son, who's continued sport skydiving, and and uh, I did another tandem jump. Now this is you know 
uh, 30 years later, right? So, right, so right. I thought, uh, I thought, you know, and I did the tandem jump and I was thinking, what am I going to do after I retire? I need a sport. I need something to keep me active. And on the flight home from California with my wife, I said, I think I found my next endeavor. And she said, I know you're going skydiving. And so last summer I picked it up and I just started skydiving. I started Good learning deal. to be a licensed skydiver. And this May I plan on finishing up and getting my license. So where do you currently go for that? Where Do you still go down to Tucson? Are you doing something local? No, no, no. I started last year in Cincinnati, and I was working down in Richmond, Kentucky anyway, so that was a weekend drive. I'd just go up on Fridays and, and skydive on Friday and Saturday, then head back on Sunday. But uh, uh, since the weather closes that operation down in the Midwest. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And it's been closed down here. So now I'll go here to uh, skydive Indianapolis and I'll finish up my, my lessons there. Plan on being on safety day this coming Saturday, next Saturday, sorry, which is safety day out there. And then uh, start up in May, which is when students are able to start skydiving again. That is great, brother. And I'm glad you have that, you know, and that you have that uh, mental aptitude to say, hey, you know, I'm going to keep maintaining proficiency in this, but I'm taking on new endeavors, new interest, you know, and I, I like that. I, one day I'm going to have to go tandem. Once you get your, once you get your license and everything and you're set, just strap, <laughs> just get a little baby carrier and, you know, maybe something for me to bite down on, hook me up to your uh, chest. I've lost weight, dude. I don't weigh 300 pounds anymore. I'm 185. You can carry me. There you go. But, yeah, uh, there you, go. you know, thinking back on these things, brother, you, you know, your time in service, your time within the chemical and um, oil industry and all the various locations you've been, you know, as your time in the field progressed, what led you into working, you know, with Parsons at the remote locations you did, like at McMurdo Station, Libya, Haiti, and Panama? I mean, was that just contracts that came up or did you volunteer to go to different locations on their behalf? You know, what was your, what was the mindset and how did you get to go to these locations? Uh, opportunities. Okay. One. So there were, there were contracts that came up and then uh, my, my background was diverse enough that when they started looking, well, how are we going to fill this spot? I, I'm one of those guys. I raised my hand. I said, well, I'll go because it was a new challenge. It was a new opportunity. Um, you know, in Libya, we were destroying chemical weapons that Muammar Gaddafi had stockpiled. And my boss at that time called me up and he said, well, who do you know that's uh, got some construction safety background, but also understands chemical processing and also has some chemical weapons destruction background? And I started laughing and I said, Stephen, I'm the only one in the corporation with that kind of a background and you know it. Yeah, for those He's, listening, he was yeah. also part of the Newport uh, demobilization, yeah. uh, just like where I was out on Wake Island and they shut right. down Johnston Atoll. Uh, Dan had previous experience with the Newport facility. That's correct. Yeah, I was there for eight and a half years. So, yeah. So you know, when when it came to all of that, uh, I said, "Well, I'm the only one that has that kind of experience, and you know that." And he goes, "Yeah, but I can't ask you to volunteer." And I said, "Volunteer for what?" <laughs> and then he said, "Well, it's North Africa," and I kind of narrowed it down in my own mind, but he couldn't tell me. And I said, uh, I'll go. And he goes, not until I hear from your wife. You're not going anywhere. I was going to say, that, that would probably be a challenge for most. Yeah. yeah. So I had to call. I had to have my wife call him and tell him, yeah, it was okay to go. So, uh, but uh, and, and the same was true for um, 
Well, Haiti was, you know, after right after the earthquake. So right, that was, right. That was uh, kind of a humanitarian effort in some ways, but it wasn't. It was an opportunity that when they called me and asked me would I go, I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll go. Um, uh, Panama was a short-term 10-dayer, but uh, to build a bridge for some people that needed a bridge, had been waiting for a bridge for almost 50 years. And, oh, yeah. And uh, so, and you know, when the water rises down there, um, they are completely cut off from the rest of the world. There is no other... There is no other way for kids to get to school, women to get to the grocery store, hospitals, anything. So without the bridge, because they all, we watched them while we were building the bridge. They would walk across the water. Girls would hike up their dresses and, you know, put it around their, uh, just above their knees, and they would walk through the water just to get to the school bus. I can so imagine. I can imagine, the, yes. Putting the bridge in was a, was a necessary thing for them. You know, and, and that's great because, like like you, I, I've worked in some austere conditions. I've not been to, like, Libya. I've not been to Haiti. Um, but, yeah, working remotely and, you know, being distance from the family, that's something people ask me all the time. They're like, hey, Alan, I'm looking at going up to Alaska, you know, working on the pipeline. Or I'm looking to go to, like, Kwajalein or Wake Island, like places right. I've been to before. So for you, Daniel, if... We have people come up to you that are in safety or transitioning into the field who want to work on remote projects or go into the chemical industry. What kind of advice would you give them as to like education, what companies, programs, how to look for these types of jobs? What would you suggest to people that are new, you know, that, that want to follow in your footsteps and continue the legacy that you've left behind? Well, I, I would suggest that you don't pass up opportunities. If you can fill the need, and if you have a skill set, uh, or you're building a skill set that you think would um, would uh, be advantageous to the project, speak up. Don't be afraid to volunteer. I mean, you and I learned way back: never volunteer for anything. I found that to be a, a fallacy. That's so far from being accurate. Oh, you absolutely true. Absolutely, you, should, you miss you opportunities. Volunteer. You miss opportunities if you don't. And if you want to build a dynamic uh, resume, if you want to build a diverse resume, you don't do it by sitting on your hands. You have to raise your hand and say, I'll go. Um, and sometimes you have to stretch. So some of these are stretch assignments. Uh, you have to be willing to say, hey, you know what? I don't know all of that stuff, but I'm willing to learn it. And I'm willing to take the lead on it, for that matter. And I'm glad I'm you said to that. to make a difference. Yeah. It, it, it is a stretch and, and for a lot of us. It was a stretch for me on all of these assignments. I didn't go to any of these thinking I knew it all. And that's a scary thought. If I think that I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong room. That's uh, why I always go in the room by myself, so I actually am. And then, <laughs> and then Siri yeah. goes, yeah, you're not alone. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask yeah. you this too, brother, as a follow-up to that. With yep. us both having been military medics, you know, one of the things I try to get some of the new safety is learn, you know, Red Cross to teach first aid, um, yes. you know, CPR, AEDs. I, I never thought about it before, it's, but, you know, you brought it up where you were with the fire department. Um, you, do you think that's a good skill set for a lot of safety that are looking to go out into the petrochemical the pipeline, the LPG and other areas, is look at maybe taking, like, fire fighting one or whatever the core structure is for firefighting? 
Well, uh, yeah, you know, I had a guy, uh, matter of fact, a guy that hired me into Parsons told me, you know, I don't normally hire firefighters, and the reason I don't is because they're too reactive and they're not proactive enough. But in the same regards, I had been recommended to him by his one of his good friends who was a professional firefighter. Good, and good he deal. he said, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance on you. So the idea that... Um, uh, emergency response is emergency response is emergency response, as you know. And so once you have the fundamentals down, regardless of what your background is, my background was fire, but it was also hazmat and rescue and uh, medical. And uh, But I started with medical. So you can, tra- you can you know, transition across all those phases, but if you whatever you learn, you're going to learn some safety in all of it. So there's, Absolutely. Always, sa- yeah. there's always safety in firefighting. Uh, there's always safety and rescue, right? You never take a victim to a rescue, so it's all about you know your own personal safety. Um, there's always always safety in a hazmat response. So, yes, sir. Uh, you just don't want to make a bigger mess out of things, right? So you're always learning safety in all of those. And so, is there something to of value in all those? Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, it's just like going to a remote location. I never pass up the opportunity to learn something new. And I'm glad you said that because people ask me all the time when I went and became a, a hazmat trainer. Uh, and I said, well, you got to remember a lot of the industries I'm dealing with deal with anhydrous ammonia. So I'm training their guys how to respond to, you know, unplanned release, blevies, things like that. Right. And I, I was like, you know, part of that safety is suiting up, going level A, and showing these guys how it's done from the inside out. So I, I'm glad you absolutely. put that. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, and for everybody listening, uh, the show is actually one of 92, and I, I joke about that, but <laughs> knowing some of Daniel's background, because I wanted to research you know, prior to the show, and that's how I found out through some of the other safety um, platforms out there you know, about his experience being a, a cat crack operator, uh, very limited information. But when you have people with a diverse background, with this much you know, history and experiences in the field and um, in life, you know, there's so much more that we could learn that you can't get in one show. And unfortunately, you know, we have time limits for this. But Daniel, for those that are inspired by you that would like to get more information, maybe on Parsons, maybe on doing remote work, um, connecting with you, you know, to get you as a contractor, how can people find and connect with you? Well, probably the two easiest ways, uh, well, there's there's three, I, I think, but but one of the ways is you can just email me. So, safetydanh at yahoo.com. I've had that email address for almost 30 years now. So, that's that's an easy way to get a hold of me. The other way is my through my website, which is peaksafetysolutions.net, and I can always get a message through there. And I'm active on Facebook on uh, U.S. Safety Professionals and also on Extreme Safety Professionals. So you can get me through on Facebook there as well. Um, and those are places where it's easy to find me, Alan. Okay. And, and for those that are listening, you know, and I, I do know Dan from the USSP site, um, you know, and for safety people who are looking for information, looking for uh, safety ideas, documents, things to help them progress with their education or their job site. It's a great group to get in, ask questions, and, you know, they have, I think now it's over 11,000 members uh, that help support the community and will help support you. Dan, is there 
anybody you'd like to give a shout out to or any you know previous people that you'd like to acknowledge before we go and just be able to thank them or uh, chew no, them out? Uh, <laughs> no, can't thank anybody like that. I do want to thank my friend Clyde Trombettis out in California who just retired from Cal OSHA. Uh, he was one of ah. my early business early Good business deal. partners. He's gone back into consulting as a PSM consultant for uh, one of the refineries out in the Bay Area, but he's a good guy. Um, always appreciated, Clyde. Um, you know, there's, uh, um, boy, if I start the list, it's going to be long. Steven Schoolcraft was my uh, mentor in Parsons, and he's now with Layton Construction, and uh, he's the vice president of safety there with Layton Construction, and if you look up Layton Construction, you're going to see some phenomenal work they do all over the country, um, big construction projects. Um, my buddy Trent Rogers, who's still with Parsons, and uh, some others, but uh, thanks, Alan, for having me. I do appreciate so much you having me on. No, thank you for being on. You know, the next 91 episodes will be a little bit better, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, definitely, we have to get you back on because... With the insurance safety, you know, we wanted to get a panel together of sure. you know, some of the older guys and some of the younger guys and talk about some of our concerns with what we're seeing out in the field now compared rel- you know, to relative history and things like that. But for everybody listening, again, you've had the distinct pleasure of listening to Mr. Daniel Hughes. Uh, thank you for being here. Please let us know in the show notes you know, what you thought. Uh, reach out to Daniel. He's provided you connective areas. Don't forget to plan, prepare, communicate, and engage daily and communicate in a manner that wants to bring that person back to you and listen to things. You know, don't be the safety cop. Don't be the hard ass that just wants to get your point across. Do better for everyone. Thank you for listening. Now get the hell out of here and enjoy the rest of your day. Daniel, thank you for being here. God bless you. Yes, sir. uh, You too. We'll see you later. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to the Diary of a Bald Man. How do you feel? A little dizzy? Maybe a little nauseous? That was one hell of a ride, I know. It's our passion to make you feel as uncomfortable as possible. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We know we had a blast. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime... Google Alan the Safety Guy. You'll find all the socials there. Connect with us or else. See you next time on Diary of a Bald Man. <laughs>